Welcome to the Action Research Podcast. Somehow, the first podcast dedicated solely to action research. Each episode, action research experts Adam and Joe explore facets of this research methodology. Speaking with experienced and emerging action researchers, they aim to contribute to this important and growing field and understand the nuance and process of action research in action. My name is Adam Stieglitz, PhD candidate at the University of Louisville and also director and co-founder of the Andean Alliance for Sustainable Development, a social change organization in the highlands of Peru. My name is Joe Levitan, an assistant professor and graduate program director at McGill University, as well as the co-founder and co-director of Centro Educativo Payatayu, a community-based learning center in the Peruvian Andes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the last episode of season two of the Action Research Podcast. To finish out this season, we're changing things up a bit. Instead of Adam and Joe hosting, you're getting the production team, Vanessa, Shika, and introducing a new member of our team, Corey Legasic. Hi, everyone. It's great to join this team. So a fun fact about all of us is that Joe supervises us in our PhD work. So in this episode, we're flipping the script and putting Joe in the hot seat for a change. We are taking a deeper dive into recurring theme on this podcast, Relationship Building. Using his 2019 article, Ethical Relationship Building in Action Research, Getting Out of Western Norm to Foster Equitable Collaboration to Guide Our Conversation. You can find the reference in the episode notes. Before we continue, we just wanted to thank you for being open to this format. Why don't you share some fun trivia for us with our listeners? When I was in high school, I played the saxophone and the guy who was teaching me was in a jazz band. So I accompanied him on a couple gigs and made a little bit of money playing saxophone in high school. That is a fun fact. Okay, you ready for a lightning round? Yes. Question one, what is ethical relationship building? Ethical relationship building means thinking through how to create, co-create socially just power dynamics when building a relationship, whether it's a professional relationship, friendship, romantic relationship, thinking through socially just power dynamics and the ways in which you can co-construct that with whoever it is you're building that relationship with. Question two, why is ethical relationship building and action research important? So one of the core tenets of action research is to have positive, reciprocal, socially just relationships in order to do the work of action research. Uh, So it's a pillar of the methodology. Question three, what's the number one thing researchers can do to support ethical relationship building in their work? I think the most important starting point is to learn how to be self-reflexive and learn how to be self-reflexive, not only individually, but working with others. So if you have a trusted collaborator, thinking through how to be self-reflective, not only in your own journaling time by yourself, but also in a relational dynamic, um, that's a great way to practice how to start to build ethical relationships. Question four, your focus in this article is on what you call theoretical orthodoxy. What's that? Theoretical orthodoxy means getting stuck in or being stuck. So orthodoxy being very kind of understood as a rigid adherence to, um, and theory, theory obviously being the theoretical frameworks that we use to make decisions and interpret our realities. Theoretical orthodoxy is 
getting stuck in and rigid to a particular theory when trying to do action research. And that can be problematic because theories necessarily have to cut out some evidence or cut out some ways of thinking in order to make a coherent statement or coherent argument. So that does, that's not a problem with theory in and of itself. But if we, as humans in different spaces, don't think about other multiple theories and get stuck in only one theory, we can make some pretty big mistakes. Question five, why is interrogating theoretical orthodoxy important in action research? So action research is at its core about iterative, context-based identification of problems, responses to problems and ideas and ways of addressing those problems. If we are stuck in one theoretical framework when trying to do action research, we're not going to be responsive to the realities of the space. And so getting stuck in one theory will limit our responsiveness. And if we're not being responsive, we're not going to be able to do action research as it's meant to be done. That brings us to the end of the lightning round. Yeah, that was an amazing lightning round and you nailed it. <laughs> yeah, this, this article is very important because it talks around relationship building. And when we talk about relationship building, it is one of the crucial steps in any research or even out of you know research context as well. So this is something that I'm still exploring. And I guess we don't have any right or one answer for it because it takes you know year to build and have the element of trust in that relationship takes a lot of work, especially when you are an outsider in the community you are working with. So from our understanding, your work over a decade in the Peruvian Indies has significantly informed your work. Can you discuss some of the major turns in understanding relationship building? The idea of building a trusting relationship may take years, but it may also only take a few minutes. I don't want to get stuck in that theoretical orthodoxy to think that it's, it has to take years to build a trusting relationship. I mean, at least in my experience or in, in your experiences, you might have found you met somebody and within five minutes, you have a trusting relationship with this person because for some whatever reason you click. And you may travel, you may do some work together, you may do some tasks, you may actually engage in some many forms of action research because action research is something that can happen in day-to-day -day life if you're asking questions, trying to identify problems, trying to solve those problems, reflecting on that, and then doing that iteratively. So I don't wanna make it sound like you have to have years to build trusting relationships. At the same time, when we think of how those trusting relationships come about, what happens, what kinds of dynamics, what kinds of nonverbal communication, what kinds of words are being said. If you are thinking it along the same lines as somebody else, you may build trust very quickly. However, if you are working with people who come from a very different tradition or epistemological background, then it may take a while to start to build trust. So it may be that there are certain ways of being and thinking that allow you to trust somebody and meet somebody very quickly. And then there may just be some positional distance that even if you think along the same lines, because of the positionality that you have and the positionality that somebody from, let's say a Quechua speaking community has, there's a history there that you two, you know, let's, we'll talk about it in dyads, even though usually it happens within multiple people and it can be as much as 50 to hundred people. When there's a positional distance, you know, because of power, because of background, because of identities, building trust can be a little bit more difficult. Usually if you're sharing similar positionalities, it's easier to build trust. So sometimes if you're working on, uh, let's say a research project and you're an assistant professor and you meet another assistant professor 
and you both have a similar epistemological orientation, you build trust very quickly and you can get a project done. But let's say you're, you know, for example, my positionality as a white guy who speaks Spanish, who's coming to Peru, who's an American citizen working in Canada, there's all this stuff going on with my positionality. And I'm working with, you know, let's say, for example, one of the, you know, my closest friends and collaborators, Juan Loaiza, who is, you know, an elder, Quechua speaking, trilingual person who owns a business. Based on our positional distance, there are different power dynamics at play because he is a well-respected elder within the community. And I'm this, you know, younger person who is, you know, also coming from a country that is seen as kind of a world hegemonic power right now. So there's positional distance within our dynamic. That required a couple of years of building trust to be like, okay, what is this, you know, for his, from his perspective, and he's told me this, this is why I feel comfortable relating this particular example. Oftentimes when somebody comes down to say like, I wanna do some work to support a community from the perspective of, of Juan and, and other people in his, in his community and his circle, it's like, all right, so how do we like make sure that they don't cause harm and we can take advantage of whatever it is they're gonna offer for our own ends? So there's the positional distance right there. I was walking around asking questions, trying to figure out the context and all they were saying were these dollar signs over my head. And I didn't know that. There are a lot of assumptions that positionalities and positional distance create. And it takes years sometimes to uncover those assumptions and to get to a place of relational trust. Given all of that, you kind of circled around some of the major turns in relationship building, whether or not it takes five minutes or five years to build a relationship with someone, figuring out the nuance between coming in as an outsider and earning trust or developing trust with people from a completely different context. Are there any other major turns in your understanding of relationship building? Yeah, thank you for recentering my answer to the question. Thinking about this particular case of working with Juan, I don't want to make it sound like this is the process and their phases of developing trust because it's not a linear process. But here's some of the things that I noticed that happened. You know, the first one was, do our interests align? Because it's easy to trust somebody whose interests align with your interests. You know, you can trust somebody who is planting trees with you to continue to plant trees. Or you can, you know, trust that somebody who's traveling is going to want to travel to the place that you both decided you want to go to um, because you both said you wanted to do that independently or whatever. Another thing that happens with building trust, especially building a deep trust that is, you know, thinking through ethically is, are you going to stick around when things get a little bit hard? You can't really know that um, by asking questions that you have to experience things together. So one of the big turns with building trust is having experiences together and seeing how people react and respond. And so that's maybe nonverbal, or it's not explicit what the words are, but it's how those reactions are and how that relationship develops when things are difficult or when there's a disagreement. Another turn that happens that I think helps with building trust is the uncovering of assumptions like that mutual discovery. There's some kind of interesting connection and then you start to discover about each other some of the assumptions and ideas that each other have. And sometimes those align and sometimes those don't align. And so that's another turn that, that helps build that kind of understanding. And usually there's a self-disclosure and a vulnerability that happens in that kind of sharing of assumptions. And that turn is really important, the ability to be vulnerable. And that usually happens, not always, but that usually happens after some kind of shared experience where there's some difficulty and it was overcome. 
Um, you can have a superficial level of trust where, you know, you have shared interests, you accomplish a goal, it gets tough, the thing kind of falls apart and you just kind of go your ways. It's not like you don't trust that person anymore, but that kind of process happens often in, in these kinds of partnerships. But if you have a more lasting and durable kind of relationship, a work relationship, a partnership in that way, usually there's a difficulty that is overcome and some kind of new learning about each other that builds trust. And that includes having the capacity to be vulnerable. Another turn that I think is helpful is what happens when your interests don't align. Conflict can be a misalignment of interest or it can just be a miscommunication. So I'm not saying like in difficulty, it doesn't need to be that, but what happens when your interests don't align? How do you negotiate and navigate that to build consensus? And if you can do that, then that builds another deeper layer of trust to start to build that, what we would consider like really ethical relationships. And then finally, understanding of the power and the different roles that you take on in different times. So starting to understand the other person in a deeper way. So for example, with Juan, I know that like he is the elder. So we're he's going to take on certain roles if we're doing a project together. And he knows that I'm going to take on certain roles because we've understood and identified each other's strengths and where we can support the, the goal and mission of whatever it is we're doing, whether that is doing an action research project or whether that is you know, helping his daughter to create a restaurant. He knows kind of where I'm coming from now because we built this trust. And now there is a clear nonverbal way of thinking about whose strengths are going where and how do we work as a team? That's the next layer of turn that I think is really important. There's some other terms, but I think those are the important ones. Yeah. So, I mean, so far we've been talking about uh, relationships as though we're just building a relationship with one other person. You've talked about one and I'm just, wondering though in the context of a community where even within the community you might have uh, different interests uh, you might have different assumptions within the community how, how do you build an ethical relationship with the diversity within that community especially as you form closer relationships with some people over others that's a great question and that is more complex which is why i started with the one-on-one as you build a relationship with an individual, the way in which community, at least in my experience, community understanding starts to develop is you start to negotiate your position within the community. Like the way I understand a community is that there's an ecology and I'm not gonna do theoretical orthodoxy and say that it's always an ecology, but there's an ecology of community life sometimes and networks within a community in which navigating a trusting relationship with the community requires building a number of specific trusting relationships within the community of people who have certain positionalities and not necessarily the ones of people in power but it's people who have certain positionalities related to the, the work that you're doing or the positionalities that you have in terms of the tasks that are happening when doing that it starts to establish yourself within the community so that people start to see your identity shift so one of the things that is really important when we talk about relationship building is we need to talk about identity and not identity in the more macro way of, you know, class or race, but identity in terms of who you are in this community. What roles do you have? What personal qualities do you have? You know, how does your more macro identity, such as my citizenship in the US, relate to how I am embedded within the community? So, you know, one of the things that constantly happens now, for example, for me is that there are things that you can get in the U.S. or in Canada that you can't get in Peru. And so sometimes I have that people are like, all right, you're going back to the U.S. for a little bit. Can you bring me this? Can you bring me that? Sometimes 
that can be interpreted as, as kind of like either an exploitative thing, or it can be seen as a trust building thing, or it can be seen as a helpful thing, or it can be seen as a, you know, just doing a, a favor for a friend kind of thing. And then there are multiple ways to interpret bringing back goods. The final turn is the mutuality. So you know that the trust that's being built is maybe, and this is a concept of Aini that's important. Concept of Aini is a catch turn, but it's like today for you, tomorrow for me. And if you can build that trust and you have that trust that it, there's going to be reciprocity and there's going to be mutuality, that's a deep, deep layer of trust. And so if you don't have that for doing this kind of favor, then it seems like it's exploitative because you don't actually think that there is a mutual care there. So what does that mean in terms of the community? Well, you have different relationships within the community. You know, in my experience, any community has people who, especially a big one, have different interests and different vested goals. So how do you show that you know you are sensitive to different people's goals and also responsive to the different needs of the different groups you do that by action so you do that by you know making sure that you consider and are responsive to and show that you are being responsive to the different goals if you're doing an action research process or an action research project you do the work in action that is necessary to show your positionality as somebody who is mutual with the community to build that trust. And it takes repeated efforts of doing that. And sometimes it's possible and sometimes it's not. And one of the hardest parts of building trust within a community is when it's not possible for you, but somebody thinks it is, and that can create like a reputation that can be very difficult. So it's really about showing who you are and being thoughtful and careful every day to do the actions that are in alignment with the mutual and shared values and objectives of the community that also align with your own personal uh, value system. You know, it could be that there's a activity that you don't want to participate in in the community because there's a ceremony or whatever. For example, there's a ceremony in one of the communities I work with where the young men will go around and they'll whip each other in the ankles. I'm not going to say that they can't do that, but I'm also not going to participate in that. So that's like a thing where my value system may not include in that, but that doesn't mean that I can't be included in the community. So these kinds of little examples show also how to build trust where it's like, okay, so what happens when your values or your objectives don't align? Well, I'm still part of the community, but I'm not necessarily participating in everything. And that also shows that I'm going to stick around even when things don't exactly align with, with my own objectives or goals. I just wanted to say that I thought it was really interesting in your bringing about these different turns that they mostly seem to center around trust and how trust manifests between people. Corey, did you want to pick up that question about emotional yeah. freedom? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that was something kind of picked up in your work is you talk about the importance of emotional freedom and building ethical relationships uh, in research. But then in the article, we get into these strategies and it feels like emotions take a little bit of a backseat in the discussion. And so we, we thought we'd kind of bring it back here. Um, and so I'm thinking, because I, I, I relate to the work that you're doing, especially thinking about power dynamics as an outside researcher, working with marginalized communities, thinking about my own positionality, and then especially when our, and you've talked about this, uh, the dollar signs, right? When the outsider researcher, we have access to resources that are gonna be driving some of the projects that we take up with these communities, not the only resources, but can be an important financial resource. So it, it feels really easy to worry that honest communication can be limited. 
And since so much of the work described, especially in this article, relies on the power of listening, really want to ask you your advice on how to create meaningful space for communicating difficult emotions. Like, how do you make sure that people feel comfortable being angry with you or complaining or, or showing disappointment in your collaboration? Like, how, how do you know if it's important to listen? How do you know that you're actually able to know that someone's hurt, that they trust you enough to share that with you? That's a, a great question. Also, feel free to push back on anything that I say if it doesn't make sense or if you think there, there's an issue with it, because I think that's important too, as this is a dialogue. And that is one of the strategies that I use to try to build that kind of trust. And it may not be in an emotional way, but invite feedback, invite pushing back. Like, is there something I said that you were like, hmm, I'm not sure about that. I need some clarification or I might not agree. And then let's talk about it. If you invite those kinds of things in a conversation, but do it in a culturally responsive way, because there are ways to do it that I would do it in Spanish, that I don't do it in, in English. And I would do this with my colleagues in Quechua speaking communities differently than I would, let's say in Lima, because there are different norms. Um, and in fact, there's, a, a, there's an easier norm for feedback in some ways and respectful feedback in some ways in Quechua communities than there is in Lima because it's a different epistemology. It's a different cultural norm of, of interaction. When we're talking about emotion and, and trust, and we're talking about power dynamics, we're talking about the ability to, in some, not always, but in some instances, we're talking about the ability to express those emotions and feel like the person who is listening to those emotions is receiving them and honoring them. You know, there are culturally appropriate ways of showing that. So, you know, there's a different way, for example, that I would show it when I'm talking to a friend in Canada than how I would in Peru. But it also would be a different way to show it when I'm talking to somebody like Juan than I'm talking to somebody like uh, Angelica, because they are different people and we have different cult we have a different dynamic and when there are different cultural norms also when it comes to gender in these spaces and and to deny that there are gender norms within this community would be would be false would be empirically inaccurate and it doesn't mean that those gender norms aren't problematic but it does mean that you have to be responsive to the space and so one of the challenges with some of this is that you need to learn how people expect to be responded to in a way that matches what they need from you and sometimes that's talk like sometimes that is clear dialogue. And then sometimes it's also action. So there are some times when you sit and you listen and you don't even need to say anything because there's a dynamic. You know, that's something that uh, Angelica and I have done on a fairly regular basis because she has a lot to talk about. So we talk about that and I sit and I listen. And she's happy with the listening. And then sometimes she has things that she says that need to get done. And sometimes I'm in a position to do it. And if I can be honest with her, and say like, I can do this, but I can't do that, then that's important too. And if and then if I say it and then I don't do it, that's gonna hurt trust. And that's also gonna hurt power dynamics because power dynamics are not stable. Power dynamics will change and shift around. And there are some instances where the power dynamics might be more equitable. And then there are other instances where, you know, for whatever reason, because of your positionality, you have more power. That doesn't mean that there aren't macro power dynamics that don't exist. So there's always going to be, especially for an action researcher, there's always going to be the funds, the title, the, you know, these things that you walk around with as an outsider that are going to create a possible and existent without conscious transformation in balance in power dynamics. 
One of the things that action researchers need to do and work on themselves is to figure out how to transform those power dynamics so that there is a space of mutuality. When we're talking about funds, is there a way, for example, to create a funding structure where everybody has a say in what the budget is used for? So do we vote on budget items instead of just being like, here's my budget, here's what I need to use it for? Do you have the institutional space coming from a research institution to do that? And how do you navigate that? Some of those things are transformations that require mutual trust before you can actually transform the power dynamics themselves. All that being said, this is another roundabout answer. When we're talking about emotions, emotions are going to be interwoven with everything strategic that we do. So we can't isolate emotions from the thoughts and actions that we're taking or the communication that we're doing because communication is fraught with emotional content. And so it's hard to like describe emotions as outside of the strategies because the strategies are emotionally informed. The strategies are really about being responsive to the emotions that people are having and what lies beneath the emotions because at least in my understanding of emotions, emotions arise when, and to intellectualize a little bit, emotions arise when somebody's identity is not being honored, somebody's needs are not being met, somebody is not being respected in the way that they need to be, so that's another need, or there is a frustration because a goal is not being accomplished, or there is a, you know, something happening outside of that particular space that is is affecting them. I'd like to push back on that, though, because that's a pretty negative framing of emotions just as much as when somebody's needs are met mm. and they're overcome with joy that let's say you did show up when you said you would i think that's equally important in building relationships and understanding the role of emotion like the negative kind of swing might impede relationship building but the positive swing might even give it momentum that might not have been there otherwise mm. and i also wanted to push back on this idea that you can't separate emotions from your strategies or the work that you're doing or that I don't remember exactly how you phrased it. But as a person who pays a lot of attention to my emotional responses to people that I'm engaging with, I could pick out a moment where I was having a feeling, understand what it was and understand its trigger and then make a choice as to whether or not it was going to affect my future action or response. So is that what you meant or did I misunderstand what you said? So I think the first the first point that you made about emotions being positive, that's a really good point. And I, I wanted to say that I agree about that because that's really great. Um, because when we, when the question was framed, we were assuming we were talking about negative emotions. And so I was assuming about negative emotions. But I think your response is in some ways more important is like sharing the joy and sharing the positive builds that trust. And I think that's really, really important to highlight because it's not just about negative emotions and it's not just about problems and getting out of that negative framework and getting into a more positive framework is really, really important. And, and we often don't do that enough in academia because we are trained to identify problems. And I think that identifying solutions, especially in action research is one of the strengths of action research. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. So thanks for that. I think that what I meant by not being able to separate emotions from strategies is not that you can't have a space between emotions and strategies, but you can't not consider emotions in the strategies themselves. Okay. Yeah, that's different. Okay. Thanks yeah. for clarifying. So even though emotions took a back seat, it's because in that writing that I was doing in, in my head and some of the assumptions that I had is that 
the emotions were informing the strategies, but there's a, and so when I was thinking about these strategies themselves, I was thinking about the variety of emotions that exist within a relational space and how do we have identification of those emotions to think through building positive emotions, which foster trust and relational dynamics that are positive and socially just, while also being responsive to and addressing the negative emotions. And those strategies are really meant to do that. And so I really, like, like I said, I really appreciate that you brought in to the conversation positive emotions because that is really at the core of, of a lot of this. I just wanted to say, I think we might have to clarify for listeners that Joe mentions three strategies for supporting ethical relationship building in his article. We were going to dig into that as part of this episode, but I don't think we have enough time left. But I do think that we should continue the conversation and maybe we can pick up from there in the beginning of season three, where we dig into some of those strategies a little bit more deeply, because I think this relationship part, at least for me in my work, is central to what I want to do. And I think it would really be helpful for other listeners, researchers, people interested in action research. I'm really looking forward to continuing this conversation when we open up with season three, because we didn't even scratch the surface of what we could talk about here. It's been really, really interesting. And thank you so much for engaging with us. Thanks for putting me in the hot seat. Thanks again for listening to the last episode of season two. We're taking a break over the summer and are looking forward to engaging with you when we pick it up for season three. How have you found yourself in the world of action research? Want to be interviewed or share one of your projects? Engage in interactive dialogue with Joe, Adam, and other experts and listeners in the community on Twitter at the underscore AR pod or the Action Research Podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast on most major podcast distribution platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Action Research Podcast, created by Adam Stieglitz, Joe Levitan, Shika DeWalker, Corey Legasic, and Vanessa Gold.